afternoon. You are listening to WVEWLP, Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests and not the radio station. And you are listening to Indigo Radio. Um, We are a group of educators who are deepening our understanding and making connections. We're on the air every Sunday at 1 o'clock. If you want to listen to us live, just tune in um, if you're local to 107.7 FM or if you're Outside of the Brattleboro area, you can um, go to the website wvew.org uh, and listen and stream it through there. Or you can catch us on iTunes Radio, um, iTunes Podcast. Sorry, where we do um, upload it to the podcast and also on SoundCloud. You can find Indigo Radio on a multitude of social media sites: Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So please check us out. Um, And let's see. I am Nina Kunimoto. Uh, I am doing the board today and and interviewing our two illustrious guests. And um, Kyra. My name is Kyra Swain. I'm a recent Spark Institute graduate. And I teach special education in Vermont. Great. So um, in last our last series, in, we're seeing this as, um, as a second in a series uh, to, to talk about what is disabilities, what does that mean, um, especially in our society, um, but also particularly in education. Um, and so today is really a continuation of that conversation. Last time we interviewed um, Lata, who is currently a um, PhD student her first year at University of Massachusetts in Boston. Um, and, you know, she's here as an international student from India and visually impaired. And she gave us her perspective on growing up in India um, visually impaired and then coming here as an international student and some of the differences and some of the challenges. So um, in today's show, we'll be speaking with two educators um, who've been working in special education and disabilities um, to contextualize disabilities in a much broader sense and more uh, in social structures and policy. Um, So we have two guests today, um, Kyra Swain, uh, as she mentioned, uh, she graduated from the Spark Teacher Education Institute, um, was it last week? Yes. Yeah, last <laughs> Saturday, congratulations. Thank you. Um, and she is currently, uh, she has been, um, she started in September um, as a special education teacher here in Vermont. Um, and we also have on the Uh, on the line, Sara Villanino, who is actually in my cohort um, in the Urban Education Leadership and Policy Studies PhD program at UMass Boston. And she is um, an education professional whose background and research interests um, include is around the inclusion of students, families and community voices in education policies. So I want to welcome them both. But before we jump into um, really sort of uh, digging deeper into this topic, we're going to go for our first song break. And so Kyra chose the songs today because, you know, for those of us who've been around doing this show for a long time, we kind of sometimes pick the same songs a lot. And so I had Kyra pick great she picked some great songs today so tell us a little bit about your um what songs you chose today so the songs i chose today they're all jazz um they're the first one is dolphin dance by ahmad jamal and i'm excited to hear it all right so um let's check out dolphin dance by ahmad jamal Thank you. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro Community Radio Station. This is Kyra and Nina. Yeah. And... Okay, so um, Sada, are you on the line? Yes. Yay! (laughs) See, Kyra... Kyra and I are, you know, we're not professional radio folks, so we're always nervous until that person comes, says, yes, we're on the air. <laughs> so, Yes, I am here. I'm very excited, and thank you for um, sharing this space with me. I'm no worries. We, we love having you here. Um, so we're, we'll get started. I'm going to um, first uh, put the question to Kyra. Um, So if you could tell us a little bit about your work as a special educator here in Vermont. So right now I work with students in small groups. We go to separate classrooms and they have IEP goals. So an IEP is stands for individual education plan, individualized education plan. And so there are goals that are in that that students are supposed to meet and work on to have and also have services around so that they can do skills such as writing reading math in their general education classes Wonderful. Thank you. And Sada, um, please tell us a little bit about what you do and, and sort of sort of broadly like your research area and your work. Okay, sure. Um, so my name is uh, Sada Nino and I am an education professional. Um, currently, I work at a nonprofit that supports uh, students and their families and the professionals that support them regarding rights. Um, related to special education and special education health-related topics. Uh, And right now, I have the honor and privilege of being Nina's cohort member. Um, And we have been going through this research journey and self-discovery journey together. Um, I think it's very important because as an education professional, originally starting off in California as a general educator, K K through eight, and then moving um, to, on in the future to uh, to be a future special educator, um, K through eight, and then uh, relocating to Massachusetts, which felt like a completely different culture on the other side of the, the country and continue to be a special educator, really informs my research, um, particularly since my interest, my specific interest has been relationships with students and families, building those, honoring those, and supporting those. And so in terms of my research, I also have a background in um, education policy, particularly what is known as English learner education policy and special education policy. And so my research really centers on the voice and representation of students and families in special education policy, particularly for multilingual learners who have also been identified as students with disabilities. And my curiosity is around um, how understanding and um, lifting up the experiences of students and families to see how um, policy is experienced in in their lives. Um, Because as I see it, uh, policy is dead until someone brings it to life, until it lives in the life of someone or um, a family, students, communities. Um, And so that's kind of, that's, that's, generally broadly what my research is is about wonderful thank you so much um and so i I would like to ask you in in the last show that we did we didn't really um i mean we focused more on sort of um the experiences um of Lata, but I, I'm, I wonder if you could give our listeners really briefly um, sort of the history um, of special education and also of disability rights, um, especially in U.S. public schools. 
Sure, sure. So um, when we look at the history of special education, we look at the history of what is known as public education in the United States, and that goes way, way, way back. It includes communities starting in communities, within four communities, like the, um, the initiative, the education initiative to educate the deaf community, the large deaf community on Martha's Vineyard. And when you think about how that's how education, um, you know, kind of initiated was with, from families, with students, by students, how a lot of our social justice and equity initiatives begin. That's, those are kind of, you know, the beginnings of what shapes um, um, American public education. And then when you start looking at things like um, uh, the integration of um, education and education requirements and laws and initiatives, you look at Brown v. Board of Education in 1954 that um, challenged separate but equal and focused on integration and how separation is not equal and the rights of students um, to have access to um, public education that kind of uh, addressed or began to address in a different way, um, you know, variability and equity and who was represented in public education and who wasn't and who has the right to access public education. And then in 1965, with the, um, the passage of the edu- Elementary and Secondary Education Act, that's when um, states and um, local education agencies, school districts, we're starting to be held accountable for providing um, a free public education to all of its learners. And then that kind of built into a lot of disability advocacy, again, by parents, by parents, by family members, by students themselves, saying we're still excluded. We understand that we have these laws that everyone is entitled to a a free public education, but not everyone is represented. There were still great inequities and lack of representation of you know, children and young people with disabilities, um, uh, you know, and and the degree of, uh, you know, what those disabilities look like and how variable that was. And so with that, the passage of the Education of All Handicapped Children Act in 1975 um, really did ask these states or require these states and local um, education agencies to say, everyone has the right to education and you need to now you're now you need to be held accountable for ensuring that that you're meeting um, that requirement, and that that goes on to the um, the special education um, disability laws that are in our K through 12 public schools right now, like the Individuals with Education Disability Act, and so that was um, reauthorized in 2004, and that really um, brought in quality, what is high quality public education and access for students with disabilities. So you have the inclusion now of standards, you have the inclusion now of accountability measures like standardized assessments, standardized tests to determine how how um, schools, how, how schools, school districts and states were meeting their legal obligation to um, students and their families. And most recently, we have um, the um, 2015 passage of ESSA, the elementary, or sorry, the ESSA, which now um, takes, uh, you know, uh, No Child Left Behind, um, uh, which was in the early 2000s, and really looks at students with disabilities uh, through a different lens because there are, requ- there are different accountability requirements now that require states and school districts to disaggregate the data for special quote-unquote populations, including students with disabilities and including English learners and English learners with disabilities. Mm-hmm. And the larger the larger scope of this also applies to um, what happens outside of K-12 through public education. And so you have civil additional civil rights protections because all of these laws are civil rights protections. And so you have the Americans with Disabilities Act. Mm-hmm. And so that the ADA protects, um, you know, access to... Um, to education, educational rights in colleges, universities, in public buildings, um, in, in different settings. So that follows individuals after they exit or um, they graduate from the K through 12 public system. Mm-hmm. Great. That's really, thank you so much. I, I get the sense that like most people don't think about that historical trajectory. And what I think about as you were talking, I'm thinking, wow, you know, it was there was so much struggle involved in in pushing um, to to get these to get the access or to get the policies instated. So thank you very much for um, 
for giving us that that history, which you know um, will help us understand talk, you know where as we talk about disabilities now. And so I want to turn to Kyra and ask you know as a special educator, right, within this context of the history of, you know, special education, um, like, what are, what are some impacts that you see? Like, what are some things that, that really stand out to you um, as a special education teacher? One thing that stands out would be that, well, like Sarah said, um, there's a legal aspect involved you know the the IEP outlines specific things that special educators are are to be held accountable to providing and that the school is to be held accountable to providing um and it's based around those goals so our services are maybe maybe a goal might be to be able to read at the on on grade level a passage with um, answering maybe five comprehension questions and scoring 70% correct on those five questions. So with these goals that are created, it's not the student who's making them. Um, and, And when I remember going through students' IEPs with them one-on-one, and one thing that came up was like, well, this isn't accurate about me. This sentence uh, describing me isn't accurate, or I I want that removed because that doesn't reflect who I am. Um, And that, you know, I asked one like, oh, like what, what goals do you want? And they said, you know, I don't, I don't make these goals like these, it's not coming for me. This isn't necessarily something that I want to work on. And so I'd be really curious to see how in the future more of their voice can be, can be a part of making their own IEP and, and crafting those goals. Yeah. And I think, you know, something that as, as you're talking, it reminds me of something, Sada, you talked a lot about. And I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I'm saying this correctly. Averagearianism. Is that how it is? Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and, you know, and I, as I think about, you know, these students whose goals are made for them, like, you know, what, what is the standard and, and who makes these standards um, and who does it, who do those standards benefit and what does that even mean? So mm-hmm. maybe if you could talk a little bit about um, what averagearianism is and how it might connect with this. Yeah, sure. Um, so, and I apologize if you hear my dog snoring in the background. He's just like out by my feet. I apologize. Um, you know, neither knows Jude. He's my, he's, he's a little Yorkie and my, you know, he is a, you know, works, works with me in my office. Um, sure. So when um, when I refer to averagearianism, I refer to the research and the work done by um, by Todd Rose, who is out of Harvard right now. And Todd Rose um, speaks to how our systems have been based on an average. And after all is said and done, when we look at all of these different metrics that build up this this average, all these different data points that we add up, we, we divide, we average out, that that average education, those, that average experience does not meet the needs of anyone because we are never, there is no such thing as the average student. And so what we've kind of done is we then standardize practices. And although special education is um, designed on the individual, right? So we have an IEP, which is an individualized education program. That is, that is the programming, the comprehensive programming around an entire person. It's supposed to be based on that person. And, you know, what I hear Kyra sharing, and is also too has been my personal experience, is that we've kind of standardized the processes of developing these individualized plans. And so they, they're, they kind of become their own one-size-fits-all. And so, Kyra, when you talk about, 
you know, a, a young person, a child, a student that says, well, these aren't my goals, they're your goals. And so, or they're the goals that you're expected to create for me. Right. You think about investment and representation, right? Because this is that child's educational experience. It's what they need. It's what they need to attain a certain goal, um, you know, a certain outcome, um, academic and life, because we, we know that the educational experiences that we have in our K through 12, you know, um, ex, you know, educational career, let's say, it does impact your future, right? It does have a, a significant impact on your future. And, and so, you know, what we've also learned is that by just identifying a person to receive special education services, um, which is an individualized um, education program and services based on that individual's needs, that doesn't exact always equal equity, right? That doesn't always lead to an equitable outcome. And we know this because there are there's a dis, there are disproportionalities in the outcomes, the educational and life outcomes of um, children and young people that um, you know receive special education or have received special education. And so we see lower high school graduation rates. We see higher high school dropout rates. And those are even um, you know more intense for um, individuals or young people or children that we see as having intersectional identities, something that Dr. Kimberly Williams Crenshaw coined, coined um, and that's when we have these different socially constructed identities, for example, um, uh, the intersection of race and disability. When um, young people and children have this, we see that the outcomes are even, um, they're even less favorable, right? And so that leads to something that reminds me um, in my research that I call the inclusion illusion. So we say that special education is going to be the answer that is going to, you know, essentially fix fix what is going on um, that's not ideal with a person. And we know that that is not, that is not true. And that is not true for a lot of folks. And so just by in, having the inclusion illusion, by saying we are developing these inclus inclusive programs um, and educational experiences, they're not having the outcomes that we intend for um, our children and our young folks. Great. Well, I think this is sort of a beginning of, of really rethinking um, disabilities and special education in more critical ways. And we're going to get more into that um, after our next song break. We're going to take a little song break. Um, do you want to introduce our next song? Sure. The next song is Walk Spirit, Talk Spirit by Michael Feinberg and Jeff Tyen Watts. And it's another jazz piece. Yeah. Here we go.
you're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro Community Radio Station. Um, today we have um, uh, two guests with us today, uh, Kyra Swain and Sara Velia Nino, and we are in conversation about um, what is disabilities, what is special education, um, and you know what what impact does that have um, for for people for students in particular um, so this next question I'm going to direct at Kyra um, because Kyra made this really really fascinating connection um, between special education eugenics and carceral logic and so you know somebody at uh, at you're at exhibition um one of the faculty members of spark had said that you know she used to teach in um the prisons and majority of students in the prison settings um were you know would be categorized as special education i did a little i did a little bit of research um you know in the department of justice reports in 2016 numbers um, around 40, but I would put that at a higher number because um, usually these things are very difficult to report and to get those numbers. So um, I would say between 40 and 50, that's half of um, people who are incarcerated are have some form of learning disabilities. So if you could sort of um, talk to us a little bit about what do you mean by the carceral logic um, which you had mentioned in your exhibition, and how does that link with special education, with eugenics, um, and and also, you know, you made those connections with the key concepts of separation and tracking, discrimination, erasure, um, and exploitation. So, carceral carceral logic. So. Um, that phrase is from Carla Shalaby. She wrote Troublemakers. And she, I went to a conference this past October. And she describes carceral logic as when you're looking at different practices, different behaviors, different interactions, um, the mindset or the thinking behind those actions is around punishment and um they they feed into the structures that we have currently around prison and we're seeing some practices within school that mirror that and so Carla Shalby in her book Troublemakers was making some parallels between prisons and school and she was talking about that at the conference as well. Wonderful. And so, you know, you make this broader social structural connections between um, the carceral logic and, you know, special education students that you work with, but also with um, the separation and tracking discrimination, erasure, exploitation, and and really you linked it in one of your slides, mm -hmm. I have it in my head now, mm -hmm. um, the slides where you linked it with um, with other groups in society. Yes. So can you talk a little bit more about that so that we can see sort of in some ways like the fabric of, mm -hmm. of, of all that of that all of us are standing on in essence, yeah. I guess, that creates that logic. Right. So I would say it's some, so some of the other groups that I connected special education to would be indigenous peoples, homeless people, and um, workers who go on strike. Mm -hmm. And so specifically with indigenous peoples, the eugenics movement in the United States um, involved separating people and basically trying to remove them from society um, based on different characteristics. So if you were indigenous, that was considered no, no go. And 
you need to be removed. If you were disabled, that was also no go. You need to be removed. And so some of the tactics of removal was sterilization. And so removing the reproductive organs of both groups of people um, because it was believed that having people in society who are uh, either indigenous or disabled would be bad. And that's rooted in racism, ableism, and ultimately, why are they why are they deemed as bad? You know, why um, why are they not considered human? Why are they why how how is a human not a part of humanity? Um, and so, the logic behind um, some of the experiences that. Um, people with disabilities were subject to ties back to uh, labor and, you know, being able to work at a factory or work on a farm, you know, there's different physical abilities that's, that's required in those jobs. And so that created the stigma of, well, you're less than you're subhuman because you cannot, perform this labor and make profit for um, make money for the person who is uh, owning the products yeah yeah and um, that's such an an important connection I think because and that's something that um this book it's mostly the writings of Marta Russell who uh, wrote about and she co-writes most of her article most of her pieces with other authors but um the book itself um of the compilation of her writing is called um capitalism and disabilities and she brings that up a lot in terms of you know um the you know the labor like because they can't do this people who have particular disabilities can't do these particular tasks and therefore are are um, are devalued in society. Um, yeah, and, and I think like you know the the way you presented it, um, and I think one of the questions you, I think that was posed to you at the exhibition was, you know, um, and, and coming back now to special education and um, and the carceral logic, like for what purpose right um what does it serve Mm -hmm. and it's it's similar with homelessness um how how people who are homeless are are it's it's pretty much out of sight out of mind that's that's the relationship there and i think that it's a disservice for one um not only to the because because homelessness um disability anybody who's able-bodied or currently has a home can at some point in life not have a home or lose a sense of ability in some in some extent you know it's and so it's it's having such a separation and and um, avoidance of people with disabilities of people who are homeless of people in prison like that that separation and it's it's erasure it's um out of sight out of mind we're disappearing people and like you said what does that serve Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I wonder, Sada, do you have any thoughts to add um, or yeah, reactions? Well, yeah, no, I, 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 I completely, um, yeah, everything, everything that was said. I mean, especially with the eugenics um, movement and how that essentially established a scientific medical model to justify. Mm-hmm. Um, erasure, invisibility, um, and used genetics um, and essentially what was used, um, you know, uh, in the Nazi nationalism um, 
uh, you know, campaign was for the good of society, right, to to uh, make those non-preferred traits extinct, right? And so when I think about the relationship, um, disability, and how we look at something as othered, how it's imperfect, it's disabled because it's not abled, we are othering, we are going back to averagearianism, it's, we're looking at this norm. So what is this idealized norm? And how has that been integrated so much into how we identify disability, how we respond to disability? In special education, um, it is common practice to use norming um, as, um, as a determin- something that determines eligibility. It also, too, creates labels, um, particularly around intelligence. And, um, you know, despite what research and evidence now says about growth mindset and, you know, that intelligence is not fixed. And so that also has a lot to do with uh, understandings and, um, you know, predictions about ability and contributing, going back to that, that model based in and rooted in capitalism, you know, you are a producer, you, you go out, you work, this is what you do, and it just kind of feeds into that cycle. Mm. And, you know, as, as you're both talking, the first thing I thought, you know, um, about ability and, and my, my conception of what ability is was so challenged this for these past few months, you know, um, like, what does that even mean, right? Ability, like, the person like Lata just mm-hmm. really blew me away. <laughs> like, I stayed with her in Boston, and um, she could, I mean, she chops an onion by herself, like, you know, and she does all these things, and, you know, and she was saying how um, people see her as unable to do things Mm -hmm. and so you know for me that was just such a a big learning um you know of of what exactly is ability and and how we see it in in society and and just automatically label someone as unable to do something and then you know this this concept that sana brings up about like um norming right and again it's like it's there's you mentioned earlier Cairo about the thinking behind it or Car, you know you were mentioning about Carlo Shelby what's the thinking behind like these idea, ideas and, and ways of doing mm-hmm. things right so so what are the ideas and whose ideas and who does it elevate um and benefit mm-hmm. is is sort of the questions that i have swarming in my head <laughs> um All right, so um, we will take another quick uh, song break, Um, our last song break, um, before we go into some more really delving deep into really thinking critically about the idea of disabilities. Um, So our next song is... The Times Are A-Changing by Jack Jezro. And that's, isn't that... Dylan's song. It I was is. Think. Yeah. I was like, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did a jazz version. All right, cool. So let's hear some of that.
listening to Indigo Radio on WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM your community radio station and our guests today are Kyra Swain um, who is a special education teacher in Vermont and Sara Villa excuse me Nino um, who is a PhD candidate um, at the uh, University of Massachusetts in Boston um, in the Urban Education Leadership and Policy Studies program. And she, her work is around, um, around education and um, doing research that includes uh, voices of students and families and communities and, and how that um, fits in with policymaking. Um, and our conversation today really um, has been looking at disabilities in a more critical with a more critical lens um and so i'd like to direct the first question to sada so um i don't know if you remember sada i think it was in um dr yes it was in dr patricia kruger henny's course that i was first introduced to this reading and and even any idea of critical disability studies but um there's an author we read uh, by fiona kumari campbell um i think her her entire book is called contours of ableism the production of disability and abledness and it really um <laughs> made me think differently a little bit uh about disabilities um because I think oftentimes we focus on the disabilities, right? We focus on that problem of the person is disabled or this group of people are unable to do something. But she was really flipping that around and um, focusing, right, on examining ableism um, and, and, and sort of shifting that focus more towards the, the social structure of ableism, right? And, and this one sentence she wrote, what does the study of the politics of deafness tell us about what it means to be hearing? And so I'm wondering, Sada, if you could um, talk to us, you know, how you, how you are rethinking what, what is a learning disability? Um, and especially, you know, how are you thinking about it more critically? And what might that look like, right? Like, how would that translate um, for teachers in the classroom? You know, um, that's a great question. And, you know, Nina, I think of one of my colleagues, um, uh, Chandler Creon Jr., who, um, who, what he said just kind of um, really resonates with me when I think about this larger question that you're asking. And, you know, he asked, well, is it the fish or the water, right? Um, where and that is about perspective where does disability lie what is ableism who defines it how is it defined who has the power to define this right and who has the control um and so when i think about something like this i think about the systems that shape and the perceptions and the norm the the norming that we do off of what is considered ableness and so for example um, my mother has um arthritis and over the years um you know her hands move and and um work differently 
now, right? And so my mother could be considered to have a disability by trying to open one of the doors in my home here in Massachusetts that's a, a hundred and some odd years old because of these small crystal doorknobs that are kind of, you know, hard to turn and, and, you know, which makes it hard to pull or push the door just to get open and the task being to get through that doorway to go into a different space. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about ableism, I think that that is the standard way of designing a door, right? That is the, the, the system's response to how, what a door is, as the system's definition to what a door is. And again, the whole purpose, the objective is to get through to what's on the other side of that door, right? To get to another space. And so when I think about defining um, disability and ableism, what if that door didn't have a doorknob and instead you just pushed it, you just pushed it to go through it? Would my mother have a disability? Or am I just looking at the environmental the environmental barriers that create the context of disability. Mm. And so I think about um, some of the work that um, has been done out of the Center for Applied Special Technology, CAST in Wakefield, Massachusetts. And a lot of the folks over there and the research over there is about really understanding from a scientific perspective um, how variability, human variability, is the rule and not the exception. There is great variability in being a person. However, we've convinced ourselves as a society that the responses need to be standardized as one size fits all based on a norm, a norm that comes from power, um, a norm that is based on, based on um, and, and in um, what is considered um, able, or, uh, what is ableism. Um, and so the folks at CAST, you know, they, their work has to do a lot with expanding what the socially constructed definition and understanding of disability is mm -hmm. and to do that through what they have termed universal design for learning. So that is um, a concept and a framework that looks at the environmental barriers, the systemic barriers um, that, that create and disable and create disabling environments that contribute to barriers. And so looking at this from a systems process or looking at it through policies, mm -hmm. how can we create inclusive um, environments, inclusive learning experiences from the get-go, knowing that variability is the rule and not the ex exception and knowing that turning a doorknob was not that task. Mm -hmm. It was just getting through that door that was the task, getting to the other side. That, that's such an amazing, like, way of sort of illustrating this. Thank you so much, Sada. That, that was amazing. I'm literally <laughs> just looking at my door. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, I know. The one in your office. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, and so, Kyra, you, tell us a little bit more, because you're also thinking – um, you know, in, in a very systemic way um, mm -hmm. of, and disabilities. Um, tell us a little bit more about what you're thinking around that. Yeah. So one of the things that, you know, Sara, you mentioned, you know, the norm and what sets the norm and why, why is there a standard? And one of the things that, or one of the ways that that shows up in special education is there's a lot of standardized testing. Um, and IQ tests and and all of these this testing around intelligence and um, that's what's determining those labels that are in their their IEP and the standard standardized testing the history of standardized testing it's it was used by eugenicists so that was what was used to determine first in the military uh, that's where they did the the standardized like the IQ testing first um but then the whole education system and so that was a huge part of tracking you know having having some students you know do the college route and and go on to college having some students do um technical or vocational schools having some students go to a school that's completely separate, isolated in 
rural areas, that's where a lot of um, students with disabilities were getting their education. They were excluded from um, the general education, the public schools. And so um, what you've said about, you know, creating or, or looking at the environment that's creating the disability, I think that that's so powerful because the, um, I, I kind of lost my thought, that's but, um, because instead of looking at the person as the problem, which is what we're currently, um, that's the dominant way of, of, of thinking about um, disability is that the, it's the person that's wrong and that they're a problem, that they're not normal, you know, and that they need to be fixed. So we're going to either send them to a rural isolated school where they don't have to, you know, out of sight, out of mind. Um, or we'll just have a completely separate educational program for them. Right. Which is what, what it, I mean, special education is separated. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's so, thank you so much, both of you, for, for really, like, kind of really cutting across, you know, and, and really, like, digging deeper into what um, learning disabilities and disabilities is. Um, and hopefully, you know, teachers can can also think more on this but i want to ask both of you you know what are some key ideas or points you would like the listeners but particularly teachers um to think more about um so um and and also if you can think of any ways that um they might get involved in in larger movements um i'll start with sara Sure. Um, let me make Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> um, you know, from a practitioner perspective, it can always be kind of daunting because these are like larger systemic issues. And as a teacher, you're in your space and in a context thinking, well, what difference can I make, right? Like, I'm still required to administer these standardized assessments. I'm still required by my policies um, and by my boss to um, include intelligence um, scores in um, an IEP. And so as a practitioner, what can I do? And a lot of that is part, you, you don't know what you don't know. So going to community, going, learning in community with other special educators that have those questions, you can come together and that right there and that act of solidarity is also empowering because there are things that you can do. Um, so for example, you know, uh, there are things we were, uh, Kyra was talking about, um, you know, how we are so reliant on standardized metrics to make these huge decisions about the futures of, of people and label people. Stand, and, and, and there are reasons for accountability. We do need to have accountability. The other piece is we don't just need one type of metric. We don't just need that. And so really having an understanding as an educator and including these um, and, and making this part of the culture that you can measure things through criterion. What, and you're comparing a child or a young person's growth based on their, um, based on how they are performing, based on the skills that they are learning, based on how they're learning them. And so that's where the individualized component can come in too. And, um, you know, the other pieces really unpacking what those barriers are while there are those larger systemic ones, they can start in your classroom by looking at the different types of instructional strategies that you're using um, in terms of the, the recommendations that um, using the framework at CAST, using UDL and saying, okay, do I have multiple means of representation? How many ways is this being demonstrated, um, you know, uh, am I giving everything through a multiple choice test or everything through a, a written essay for, you know, um, um, a math concept. So ensuring that, um, you know, that you're measuring what you need to measure and that you're giving multiple ways for students to demonstrate their understanding and their knowledge. 
Um, so I think those are kind of, um, you know, some some recommendations just for now. Community is very powerful. Solidarity is very powerful. You know, bouncing ideas off someone else who's going through the same thing is very, very powerful. And together, that actually helps change policies. That actually helps change practices by doing this together. Yeah. And thank you so much, Sada. And Kyra, if you could, in like 30 seconds, um, give us. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. No, no, don't be sorry. One thing that I'm trying to work on now is making lessons that can be accessed from wherever you're at in that area. So if we're doing math, having it be less about, you know, the the hard facts or so, but rather like let's build the data set all together and what can what can you pull out of this data and what can you pull out? And it's okay if they're different. Great. Thank you so much. Sada and Kyra, thank you again for for um, having a conversation about this. And um, and this isn't the last one. Um, Kyra and I will pull together, you know, more in this series. It's going to hopefully be a series and talk with different people um, about about this this concept of disability. So Sada, thank you. Um, And you're listening to Indigo Radio, WBEWLP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM. Please tune into Indigo Radio again next Sunday at 1 o'clock. Or check us out on social media, iTunes podcast, Facebook, Instagram, SoundCloud. Thank you.